Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. I'm here with Arik Sinanian, who is an engineer and was one of Australia's earliest practitioners in greenhouse gas management and climate risk assessment. One of the reasons we're talking to Arik is because Arik's really interested in conversations around climate change in Australia and what people believe and why they believe it and and the fact that we have some divergent points of view. It's a pleasure to have you with us here today, Eric. Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to start with a question that we have for all of our guests, which is about you and your feelings and your passions for Australia and what kind of Australia you hope we will have in 20 years. What would it look and feel like for you? I hope it happens before the 20 years are up. But if we head in the right direction, there are so many opportunities for us on the climate change impact side of the equation. I think we desperately need to mitigate climate change. And I'm I'm choosing my words carefully, desperately, because it's going to affect our country perhaps more so than many other countries because our climate is vulnerable. We've just seen the floods in New South Wales, the bushfires. So climate change and all its impacts, including extreme weather events, storms, floods, droughts, extreme temperatures, all these things are very impactful on on Australia's economy and not just our lifestyle. It will affect our health It will affect our economy because of our reliance on farming and all our activities, including the quality of our lives. We like the beach. We like getting out. So from a risk point of view, it is in our interest to not only do our bit, but to also advocate more global action. And the best way we can advocate global action is by doing a lot ourselves. But then there's some really great news. We also have huge economic opportunities. The opportunities I'm talking about is renewable energy, the opportunities, because we are, apart from our farming and mining, we are an intellectual type of a country. We have a lot to offer from a technological point of view, intellectual property point of view. So we can teach, we can provide advice, we can provide services to the rest of the world. When I look at little countries like Denmark, it's a tiny little country. They've had a huge economic benefit from wind turbines. They became the wind turbine center of the world at one point. Why can't Australia become the solar center of the world? I don't mean necessarily the the, the generators of solar power. Yes, of course. We've got more sunlight coming onto our land than any other country in the world. We can generate solar power, but what about the technology we can develop to show the world what is possible? And when we do both of these, Australians will benefit 
every Australian will benefit not only from the reducing climate impact and our lifestyle and our economy, our farming, etc., reducing floods, all of that. That's long term. It's not going to happen immediately. But also economically, I think the economically there's huge uh, benefits to be had right now. It sounds like from your perspective, you have a clear sense of how that could unfold. For listeners who may not have spent their time thinking in this space, in a world in which we had moved towards a renewable-based economy rather than an economy that was reliant on fossil fuel, how might that feel different for a citizen walking around on a day-to-day basis? The immediate impacts will be reduced over time. It'll take time. So that these climatic extremes that we are seeing around the world, not just Australia, including storms and even extreme uh, winters, people ask me, how come it's global warming? And we've had the worst winter for 50 years. How does that happen? Global warming doesn't mean it's going to be hotter everywhere every day of the year. The real issue here is climatic extremes and that includes extreme winters even so from the average citizen's point of view we're going to reduce these impacts these extremes will be reduced okay that's on that side but uh, now now let me get to something that is not discussed enough that is when we reduce fossil fuel burning we will not only reduce greenhouse gas emissions but we will actually reduce pollution, simple pollution. When that wind turbine turns, yes, some people think it's unsightly, but they they don't generate any emissions. For instance, coal fire and even natural gas burning doesn't just emit greenhouse gases, it emits a lot of other pollutants. And pollution generally, not just greenhouse gas pollution, but pollution, sulfurous, uh, all these horrible chemicals will be reduced around the world. If if the whole world stopped burning fossil fuels, we will have absolutely beautifully clean air. I don't think there's been enough studies done on the health impacts, there have been some, on the health impacts of fossil fuel burning. Look at major cities in the world and fossil fuel burning just from cars alone on a really horrible day in Los Angeles or Shanghai or Beijing, when you've got industrial pollution as well as car pollution, people can barely step outside their front door. Asthmatics get affected, but also people with heart disease and and lung disease, etc. But generally, because it's insidious, it, it doesn't seem to strike people that Fossil fuels actually meet a lot of pollution, generally. So when you say, what is gonna, the world going to look like? It's going to be cleaner for a start. The air is going to be cleaner, number one. The economic impacts, as I said, of these extreme events. The social impacts of these extreme events. Look at this social impact in New South Wales. The social impact of people having to evacuate because of floods livestock dying, the economic impacts of that, the social impact, the psychological impact, people are really affected by these extreme events. So if we have less of that, surely the the quality of our lives are going to improve. 
you've spoken about the vision for an Australia where our quality of life is improved. You're an engineer by training, yes. but you've spent much of your career working on yes. issues related to climate change. How did you get into climate change, that space? As an engineer, I did a master's in energy optimization. I've always been interested in optimizing resources. I've always thought, and I still do, think that in societies like Australia and most of the Western world, we're highly inefficient in the way we use our resources. When I say resources, I'm talking energy, materials, water, fuel, you name it. And I thought there must be an optimal way of living comfortably, but wasting less. So waste in its broadest term, I don't just mean plastic waste or food waste, but waste in general. So I became interested in energy optimization and I worked for a while in the energy authority way, way back in the dark ages. But as an engineer, basically engineers are problem solvers. And I see myself as a problem solver. People sometimes put to me, are you an advocate for this and that? Because I'm not, I don't see myself as an advocate, believe it or not. I know I'm speaking like one, but I just want to solve some of these really complex issues as best I can. But I've been fortunate enough to be involved with the United Nations on the sort of global field, if you like, but as a consultant working with clients large and small and medium-sized clients who genuinely wanted to improve their efficiency, cut their costs, obviously. And, you know, if you waste energy, you're wasting money. And sometimes people even have said to me, surely you don't like working for the coal industry, do you? On the contrary, I've worked for the coal industry. I like working with these people. I'm, I'm not against fossil fuel. But when we have alternatives that are even better and more economic and, and cleaner, we should be looking at that. I've been humbled by the opportunities that I've had to genuinely help people solve some of these problems as an engineer. I became interested in renewable energy because back in the 80s, carbon management and carbon emissions became one of the biggest and most complex issues around the world. You've also stepped back from the, the specific problem-solving for clients around energy efficiency, and you've engaged in research and writing about the different points of view that people have on climate change in Australia. Your book, A Climate for Denial, Why Some People Still Reject Climate Change Science, really asked that question of lots of bright people in Australia. You talked about our kind of intellectual capacity and contribution, lots of bright people educated people, but different points of view around climate in Australia. What can you tell us about what you've learned about different patterns of belief, how that might be shifting over time, what people believe and, and why? It's interesting, yes. The, the, the technical issues, after a while I realised that the technical issues were really, the, the, the answers were there. We could solve a lot of these problems. Here I am talking about mitigation and taking opportunity of renewable energy and developing our economy based on it, all of that, then people would come to me and say, look, I think this is absolute garbage. I've, in fact, they said worse than that, but I'm not going to repeat their words. In fact, some people, to my face, 
basically blame me or being part of a global conspiracy or hoax. And I thought, what's going on here? I was genuinely interested in the psychology of it because I thought there must be something that's making people not accept the science of climate change when they accept other parts of science. People get on a got an airplane to, to fly across the other side of the world. Now, when you board an airplane, you're basically putting your life in the in the hands of science. The science that's gone into flying is enormous, unbelievable science. And that science, if it failed, would be dropping off the sky every day of the week. And yet we rely on that. We rely on medical science. When we have a problem, we go to the doctor and we generally follow what the doctor says. We take the medication or whatever. You're relying on science. Uh, you're putting your life in the hands of science. So how can it be that people who go to the doctor, who fly to London, rely on other parts of science and technology cannot accept this part of science. I thought there must be something in it. There must be something going on. And I was genuinely interested because I thought if we could identify these barriers, these cognitive barriers of accepting the science, maybe we can, because let's be honest, some of our present and past political leaders haven't believed in the science. So if we, so I thought if we could identify the, the causes of this belief, then maybe we could progress the conversation to another level. And maybe we should, maybe we were doing the wrong thing. And maybe we could communicate differently. I just want to probe on something. Your starting point was that there are people who don't accept the science. And I guess I'm wondering also whether or not we have consumed the same information and interpreted it differently. So consumed the same information and then yes. chosen to reject it. But in fact, I, I wonder, yes. given the polarization of our information sources, is that something that you looked at? Is it in fact that we are consuming the same information and interpreting it differently? Or in fact, are we consuming different information? Humans are complicated. We're so complicated. It starts off with a point of disbelief rather than there's a difference between not believing and disbelieving. A very subtle difference. Some people start with a point of view before they even read anything, because sometimes even intuitively, we'll look out the window, where's climate change? Here I am talking about these huge extreme weather events, but they happen every now and then. They don't happen every day of the year. It's not in your face every day of the year. So what happens is if you start off your premise, if you like, is that climate change is not even happening. Then there's a thing called confirmation bias. I'm sure you know about that. And cognitive dissonance. There's all sorts of, and I learned these things actually, there's all sorts of psychological barriers. So what, what people then do is they look for evidence to 
confirm or affirm their point of view. For people who are not familiar with that terminology, I think I've heard it used when people are maybe going on a date or having a job interview and they might make their mind up really quickly about somebody. Apparently, we often make up those decisions maybe in the first five minutes of meeting somebody. So if I've decided in the job interview that this person is just not a suitable candidate or I've decided that they're fantastic, I'll be looking for kind of evidence that that's true. So I might hone in on something they say and say, oh, look, they were a fantastic leader in that moment, but I might be ignoring other cues because I've decided that I like them and I'm looking for information to support that. Is that what you mean by that sense of confirmation bias? That's, that's, that's part of it because then this confirmation bias thing takes over because then they join other groups. They join conversations with other people who also have this point of view. And then what that does is it actually builds on itself. And then these people send me all sorts of articles that confirms my belief system. And, and I build up this huge database of conspiracy theories. It, it's happening in the vaccine world. It happens in many other parts of, and it turns out that a lot of factors that affect when it comes to climate change, one is ideology. Many studies have shown this, that ideology will determine the, their beginning position on climate change. Gender makes an impact and age and even religion so what happens is because of the way we look at the world and the way we look at science, the way we look at politics, the way we look at social issues predetermines how we see things. So can I just play devil's advocate then and say, given that all humans experience confirmation bias in some way, yes. shape or form, yeah. if somebody was here saying, how do you know that's not true for you? How do you know that yeah. your sort of set of demographic features haven't meant that you're in a bubble where you're passing information around? You talked about people not believing that we're seeing evidence of climate change, but there are also people who do see evidence of climate change, but their understanding is that it's just another kind of ice age cycle and it's not a function of human behavior. And they would talk to scientific research. And I guess that's why I'm interested in this idea that is it just about inherent biases or are we in fact seeing different in information? And so I guess the challenge would be to you, how do you know that you're on the right side of history? What gives you confidence that you're not consuming a narrow set of sources and research? What makes you believe you're on Fantastic. the right side of history? That's a very good question, and I'm glad you asked that. How do I know? Okay. My answer is, I, first of all, I know how science works. I know how the scientific method, as it's known, the scientific method, coming back to the airplane and your doctor and your specialist and your surgeon and your dentist, all of these scientific facts not theories, not ideas, the scientific facts have been built on huge amounts of 
scientific rigor, scientific discussion, peer-reviewed papers and experiments that prove the theory. So the scientific method is to come up with a theory or an idea, develop research programs, develop some empirical knowledge, builds over time. And so I believe in that system of knowledge development. The aeroplane example I give, that wasn't done because somebody thought, I'll I'll just put a wing on an engine. It was built over many years. There were some really terrible mistakes in the beginning because the the, the technology and the science hadn't been developed. So I I believe in the scientific method now. But then I've spent 40 years of my life doing this work. And, and I have read the alternative points of view and I've read the evidential body of information. Like you could fill my house with the climate science, data, research, knowledge. And the other points of view are based on outliers, people who pick specific parts of You know what? It's like me saying, look, I don't believe in this tobacco causing respiratory disease. You know why? Because my grandmother started smoking when she was 15 and she lived till 97. Again, I'm picking a small piece of information that is my grandmother or even maybe a, a handful of grandmothers out there that are living till 98 and they've all been smoking all their lives. That is not science. I'm sorry. It's just not science. People say, oh, but this guy who's a geologist or this guy who's a scientist questions one specific aspect of climate science. Climate change takes over a whole longer time frame and over many parts of the world. You can't just pick Sydney or Toronto or New York and say what happened last week shows that there's climate. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Climate change is a very complex issue and it's not going to be linear either. It's not like the temperature is increasing by 0.1 of a degree every year consistently, 0.1, 1. No, no, it's not going to be like that. It, we might even get cooler for a little while. This is based on ice cores and all sorts of studies that have been done that can see what happened a million years ago or 100,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago. And they can even identify what kind of greenhouse gas was present in the atmosphere 100,000 years ago. Now, to your question of what if this is a long-term million-year cycle, they can tell that this is not part of a... Also because... In the past, climate change didn't happen as quickly as it's happening now. Never in the history of the globe, of this earth, this planet, have we seen greenhouse gases increase at such a rate. So there's a lot of, it's like a jigsaw puzzle that science is now putting together. There's bits here, bit here, and it's not a complete picture. There's still few bits of the jigsaw missing. And that's where the conspiracists will pick up. They'll pick up that missing piece. They'll say, ah, what about that bit? But the overwhelming picture is very clear. I think that's a helpful distillation of some of the complexity 
that people are grappling through. And one of the things I remember that's happened, and I don't think there's as much press coverage about it now, but people will have heard probably of the IPCC, the Panel on Climate Change, and that they put together these reports. My understanding is that's a body that brings together thousands and thousands of scientists who are working, as you say, in these different pieces of the puzzle and brings together all of that research and says, what, are, what can we tell when we look at it in aggregate? And one of the things that I remember being a feature, and these reports come out every few years, was uncertainty and certainty. This is obviously the language of scientists, and that brings with it its own set of challenges. But there was much conversation in the media about the degree with which people could talk about whether that there was certainty that it was human-driven climate change. And I, my recollection was that degree of certainty has tightened up every report that's come out. So if you look back at the reports that came out 20 years ago, there was a people use a statistical range to say we're confident within this range, which again is language that for most people doesn't make a load of sense, but that every report that's come out, that degree of certainty has increased and increased. It, it's been a little bit like the raising of, a, of an alarm bell. So very cautious language initially, and then increasing language around certainty and urgency and, and probably something pretty close to panic from the the scientists who've been working in that space. These scientists and academics and experts, and I use those words very carefully, these are true experts in their field. Who are the cream of scientific knowledge that we, we can rely on around the world. And they write the specific chapters on ocean, air, Etc. Etc. So they are assigned to prepare those, and then they're peer reviewed by others. And again, it's that scientific method that I was talking about earlier. So that's the best we can do. That's the best we can produce with the scientific knowledge that we have, knowledge and facts. And these people present their facts with references to peer-reviewed documents, et cetera, et cetera. There are people who are outside that sphere. That includes me. I haven't been involved with IPCC reports. And I'm glad I haven't because I can stand aside and I, I, I don't have a vested interest in it. I can use that as my source of information without having said that I'm part of that. Our scientific knowledge is improving because we're getting more and more data, more ice core, more scientific knowledge being put into these IPCC reports. Not only is the report getting more certain and more desperate, if you like, but also I think what you'll find is that the predictions made in these IPCC reports are one after the other saying that the previous one underestimated the impacts. So almost every report is basically saying it's actually worse than we anticipated in our last report. In, in all of these reports, IPCC and others, when they project what might or might not happen in the future in terms of 
temperature increase, increased uh, extreme weather events. As you can imagine, with any forecast, whether it's an economic forecast, there are uncertainties, of course, because we, we're trying to guess what's going to happen in the future. These models are extremely complex because they have to somehow predict what happens to our technologies how much renewable energy we're going to have in 10 years time the economic active the population growth there's so many variables that they have to put all these different variables in the high range and the low range what's the worst case scenario what's the best case scenario and they chop and change and they mix all these different variables all together they put them all into this huge computer i've seen it csiro has these models you know how you press the button on your computer and the answer comes within a half a milli millisecond these models take days <laughs> that's how complicated they yeah. are they have computers the size of my room here and it takes hours and hours because they're doing these iterations it's known they do these uh, feedback loops etc because if, if something is going to change in the future, you might have to come back and redo the calculations again because something is going to change. So, and they do all these iterations over and over a million times over many hours, and then it comes up with the answer. Yeah. And that's just one answer. It's because then you do another one with a worst-case scenario. So I'll go back to IPCC. What's been happening is... They're saying that in our last report, even our worst case scenario was not worse enough, if you know what I mean. Get it. So you've talked about how complex it is and how predictions are really complicated, which makes sense. We know all predictions complicated, as you said. How can people know what information to trust? Doesn't everyone have an agenda of some kind? How do you make decisions about what information to trust? You get an email from somebody. What, what are some of the things that well, you look at to give you confidence that, that that's accurate? Okay, yeah. As I said, I believe in the scientific methods, but I also rely, maybe I'm naive, but I rely on highly qualified and highly, what's the right word, unpolitically motivated I don't think the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia has an agenda. I really don't. These are scientists doing an honest day's work. They turn up every day and they look at these things. They've spent all their lives, all their adult lives since being qualified in doing this research. They're not motivated by money. When was the last time you saw a scientist driving a Lamborghini down the street? When was the last time you saw a climate scientist or even an academic driving a Ferrari down the street? There is no agenda, really. The only agenda they might have is to further their research program. Yes, of course they do, because they want to do more research. They want to extend our knowledge. That is their agenda. So I rely on the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia I rely on CSIRO. I, I, know, I know some of these people personally. They just love what they do. They love knowledge. 
So I, I rely on these highly qualified scientific bodies to give me the information I need. But even then, when I read scientific papers, the research I had to do for my book, there were reports that I completely rejected. Why? Because there was not enough references on peer-reviewed scientific information. I, I looked at it. I read the, the whole thing. I read the references at the back and, and I made a judgment as to whether I could rely on the information given to me. We all like to have immediate answers. I, I by contrast, have, have spent hundreds of hours researching and assessing, reading and accumulating knowledge on these issues. The average person in the street wants to read the newspaper, read one paragraph and come to a quick conclusion. They don't have the luxury of being able to spend hundreds of hours uh, reading scientific papers. When you're working in engineering, if you're building systems that people rely on, you need to be confident that the systems you're putting in place, as you said with the aeroplanes, are going to you know, not cause accidents. So it sounds like you've developed those tools and techniques over time. That's useful for people who are reading things. Just how do they sift through the misinformation, the disinformation and the real information? How can they be confident that what they're reading is accurate? We know there must be misinformation simply because there are contradictory points of view, but not everybody can be right. You've given a couple of useful tips that have come out of your experience. I want to pull those out for people who might be listening and thinking, yeah, I don't have time to validate every email I get. It sounds like there are a couple of quick things that you might do. You might look and see, is there an author who's written the article? I see a lot of emails where there's no author. So the first question is who's written the article and have they put their name to it? That's always a useful kind of thing to ask. And then the quick thing to do is to say, who is that person? And do they know something about the subject? And then the other thing that it sounds like you do just as a matter of practice, but it might not be something that everyone else is in the habit of doing, to then say, where did they get their information? So what are the sources of their information? And what I'm hearing is you feel much more confident when there are multiple sources, not just one piece of research, but many pieces of research that back that up. So if you're reading a book, for example, you'd be flicking to the back of the book and looking to see a whole lot of references and you'd be looking at the kinds of references and do they reference peer-reviewed articles. In your book, A Climate for Denial, you call climate change a diabolical problem. How optimistic are you that we can find some common ground on climate and work together to find a way to achieve something that safeguards Australia's economic and environmental future. How optimistic are you that we can do that? I'm, I'm very optimistic. Mind you, I was optimistic a few years ago as well, but, but <laughs> my optimism continues, mainly because I, I am seeing a groundswell of public opinion. I am seeing even the ultra-right-wing politicians. Now I'm hearing them saying, yes, 10 years ago, Climate change wasn't even happening, according to them. But now there's a different language. Climate change is happening. They, they recognise, even in the extreme points of view, that climate change might be happening because of human activity. Of course, there's still polarisation, but I think there's convergence of opinions and there's the middle ground, if I can call it that, 
and the middle is going to make things happen. And I'm very optimistic about the young people, my sons and all their friends. So there's groundswell and I'm optimistic that even globally things are going to happen uh, from now on. We've seen the overnight change in America, for instance, with Biden coming in already. He's rejoined the Paris Agreement. Europe's been moving ahead of the world. Britain has really uh, moved forward in renewable energy. I think when I look at the world, when I look at Australia, when I look at what's happening around me, I'm very optimistic that we're going to get there. It's slow going, but, but that's what I meant by it's a diabolical problem because it affects economies, it affects social issues. It's not just a technical problem. It's multifaceted, it's complicated, and it requires major changes to the way we live on this planet. And that's why I called it diabolical. And But because of that, slow moving forward is a good thing. And I'm optimistic because of that. Great. Thank you, Eric, for your wisdom, your insights today and your time. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And for people who are interested to understand more about this topic, I found your book really easy to read. It's short and clear about this issue of the different perspectives that people have in Australia around climate change, where people are coming from and what they're thinking. So where can people track your book down if they're interested? That means so much to me to hear that because I wrote the book with that in mind. I wanted it to be simple. I wanted it to be clear. I think a lot of libraries have it, but it's available electronically as well as hard copy through Amazon. So yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Liana, and all the best for Common Ground on Climate. Fantastic idea. Thank you for continuing this conversation, a very important conversation to have. Thanks for helping us build Common Ground on Climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.